I'm Courtney Smith. And I'm Elise Sharp. And we are two Shakespeare nerds who decided to make a podcast about our love for Shakespeare. In this podcast, we will tackle as many dimensions to Shakespeare's plays as we can by looking at the text, examining the historical context in which it was written, and how the text is viewed through modern lenses of feminism, racism, classism, colonialism, nationalism, ableism, all of the isms. We will discuss how his plays shaped both the past and present, and, as actors, how his plays can be responsibly performed today, all while trying our best to approach his works without giving in to bardolatry. So, Shakespeare, anyone? Hi, listeners. It's Courtney here. If you are listening to this episode after 2023, you might be wondering, who is this Corey Lee Smith host? When we started this podcast, I went by that stage name, Corey. I've chosen to leave my stage name, and as you know, I now go by Courtney. But before you enjoy past Elise and past Courtney's episodes in our back catalog, I wanted to clarify the name switch. Now that I've set that straight, I invite you to sit back, relax, and enjoy the episode. Hello, listeners. This is Courtney. Elise and I are so thrilled to continue bringing episodes of Shakespeare Anyone to listeners like you for free. We do this out of our love for Shakespeare, theater making, scholarship, and decentering dead white men. We put a lot of hard work into research, recording, editing, and generally producing a podcast. With that said, I'm here to remind you all that we have a Patreon page if you want to support our current work and our future goals that we believe Patreon will help us achieve. We've created a variety of support levels and continue to create exclusive bonus content for our patrons on a monthly basis. Our bonus content so far includes Shakespeare Stuff We Loved This Month posts, where we share the Shakespeare-related products we are obsessing over. Not only that, but we already launched bonus episodes. One is an extension on our conversation with Dr. Simone Chess about John Lilly's Galatea and Early Modern Trans Studies. And the second is a conversation with special guest Stephanie from Protest Too Much Podcast, in which we review Joel Cohen's Macbeth starring Denzel Washington and Frances McDormand. Elise and I also discuss Shakespeare-adjacent content, like movies, TV shows, books, to name a few, and share those conversations exclusively to Patreon. These are incredible conversations you can unlock as a patron. We also have plans for additional bonus episodes, including more special guests, more film reviews, and even an Ask Us Anything. Distinguished patrons even receive exclusive voting power and snail mail. If you would like to join us and support the production of this podcast, or just check out the Shakespeare-themed names we've given the support levels, head to patreon.com slash shakespeareanyone. The link will also be in our episode descriptions. And if you like what you hear, Elise and I would greatly appreciate it if you could rate, review, and follow us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Your review might even make it on an episode. When you're done, be sure to follow us on Instagram and Twitter, and then tell a friend. Word of mouth is our best form of advertisement. Thank you for listening and all of the support you give us and the podcast. Now, onto the episode. Hi, Elise. Hi, Corey. How are you today? I'm doing well. How are you? 
I'm also doing well. A little stressful week, but you know, it happens to everyone. Yeah. I think if you don't have a stressful <laughs> week, I'm very jealous of you. Very, very jealous. Mm-hmm. But we're here. So like our last episode, this is part two of our discussion on mental uh, mental health and disability in Shakespeare's time and forward. So we do want to ask our listeners to listen with care mm-hmm. because we may be discussing topics that are not comfortable for everyone. So yeah. this is not a topic that is safe for you to listen to. Please feel free to listen to other episodes instead. Mm-hmm. I know partway through the week, you texted me to mm-hmm. say that you are so excited to share your research on mental illness and disability in Shakespeare's time and moving forward and specifically looking at like how it's portrayed in the media of the time. Is that about right? <laughs> well, uh, the thing that I'm really excited about is, and I don't want to give too much away, but it's how Shakespeare influenced early psychiatry. Oh, ooh, okay. Yeah. So last episode, Elise took us through, you took us through the history of mental illness and disability and care in early modern England. Mm -hmm. If you would like to give a refresher to our listeners, and then we can move forward. Just, you know, it's been a few weeks. Of course. So what we talked about last time, really briefly, was, like you said, what actually treatment looked like. And what we saw was, in response to accusations of witchcraft, and with the advent of more interest in dissection and anatomy and the idea of case studies. Doctors pushed for a delegitimization of witchcraft as a diagnosis and Mm -hmm. instead started treating specifically women as distressed like men could be. Mm -hmm. We also saw that for the mentally ill and disabled, there were basically three modes of care. First and foremost, for the majority of people, care was the responsibility of their family and friends. If there was a situation that could not be handled by family and friends and they needed to seek additional help and support in treating someone, there was a really expansive healthcare network of doctors, healers, people who just had folk cures that had been passed down through generations, as well as people who were looking at it more as like trained physicians. Mm-hmm. And your family and friends could choose from a bunch of these caregivers to try and find the cure for whatever ailed you. If that didn't work, or if care was beyond the help of this healthcare network, there also were these six hospitals in London where the poor and ill could receive care. And these institutions were. Institution is a pretty loaded word in this context. Um, These hospitals were a source of civic pride for Londoners. And we know basically because there's a lack of historical record of first person documents talking about hospitals like Bethlehem, there is a lack of any first person documentation that anybody went there without intent to do business there. So they weren't places of recreation. Um, It's highly unlikely, really, that people were going there without having a legitimate reason to, Mm -hmm. like caring for a loved one or doing actual business there. So there was nothing nefarious. Right. We have no existing evidence of anything nefarious. 
considering the volume of what has survived about other places, such as the theaters, we can surmise that that didn't happen because it isn't in the Mm -hmm. record. Yeah. So what we think the hospitals were like, if you were like me last time and continue to think, oh, Sweeney Todd, that Sweeney Todd narrative, it wasn't what you thought it was. Right. It was not up to today's standards of care, but we have no proof of it being inhumane care. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We left off a teaser about the one place where you did see spectacle of madness is on early modern stages. And I will be honest, I'm not bringing a ton of information about early modern madness on the stage, but I'm not going to make a liar of us. So I have a little bit to say. Um, So I picked up the same uh, source that you did. Carol Thomas Neely's Reading Madness and Gender in Shakespeare's Tragedies and Early Modern Culture. And in one of her chapters, she wrote specifically about King Lear and um, how madness is being represented. In King Lear, like the records of Richard Napier and Bethlehem Hospital, madness and distress are conceived of as treatable illnesses with mental and physical components. And we see distinctions between our two quote-unquote mad characters. I use mad loosely. So I quickly want to differentiate Edgar, who feigns madness, um, actually feigns a supernatural possession and is cured mentally, administered by Edgar himself, a layperson. Edgar's madness assumes the speech of demonic possession as a disguise. He inherits the voice of poor Tom, who is a bedlam beggar, again, Bethlehem, who speaks in the voice of the devil, quotes Samuel Harsnitz's writings on bewitchment and exorcism, His quotes and references transmit a theological discourse of sin and punishment as poor Tom. And Edgar slash Tom's madness identifies with the lower sorts and exorcism is represented on stage. So Edgar's is the bewitchment, the supernatural, the possession. That's the madness. Lear, on the other hand, is staged as a natural madness that's cured physically, administered by a doctor. It's psychologically engendered. And He's also obsessed with secular revenge and justice, so his madness is rooted in obvious physical and psychological causes. One of them is the exposure to the cold and the storm. Another is his mistaken banishment of Cordelia. A third is Goneril and Regan's betrayal. And then the fourth is that he encounters poor Tom. However, unlike Tom, Lear can be returned to sanity by conventional remedies applied by a doctor. Those are herbal medicine, sleep, clean garments, music, and Cordelia herself. So last time, Elise, you and I talked about how, well, you talked about how sometimes doctors or family members would play along. They would play act with those people to convince them that they, to get them back to reason. You know, you talk. Right, right, right. It was playing into what the person was convinced of. Correct. In order to prove it incorrect. And King Lear, I think, does a okay job of like actually showing that as it's not necessarily a treatment because Lear is not treated until he sees a doctor, but his friends, the fool and Kent, and then even Mm -hmm. Tom himself, they do play along with Lear as he's, you know, he's out in the, uh, out in the storm. They're in the, um, the The barn. Yeah. They play act the the court. The court. Exactly. And so Lear play acts defending himself against uh, guilt by acting as the prosecutor. And this is an Mm -hmm. enacted mock trial where Lear plays the judge who will arraign his daughters. They're not really there, but the, you know, imaginary daughters for their crimes. And then Edgar as poor Tom, Kent and the fool serve as the jury. 
So like the doctors and friends who acted with their friend or loved one in early modern England, these three, I would say, do that for Lear. And this is something that a 20th century French philosopher, Michael Foucault, calls continuing the delirious discourse. So in addition to the mock trial, Lear imagines himself barked at dogs. Edgar exercises them for him through a song in which he impersonates a dog. Yeah. Edgar performs this role also for Gloucester. When Gloucester is trying to kill himself, Edgar plays into it and tricks him into believing that he's at the edge of a cliff. Mm -hmm. He's really just like falling down a step. Yes. And through that, Edgar is able to say, hey, you survived. Mm-hmm. What a miracle. How and like, high up you jumped and you're alive. That's that's a miracle. Yeah. You must continue to be alive. Yeah. And oh, like there was a monster up there that led, led you there. Yeah, that led he you puts there. on a new character. It also allows him to shed poor Tom. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So in King Lear, I would argue that the early modern practices are woven into the madness of this play. Yeah. yeah. But there are five plays that I want to point out that portray madness in a gratuitous way. And mm-hmm. yeah. And um, yeah, these also came up in my reading. And one thing that came up in my reading was that it's only five plays over the course of like 18 years. Mm-hmm. And there are a lot of plays being written, but there are these five plays. Yeah. Yeah. And those plays are Decker and Middleton's Honest Horror Part One from 1604. Decker and Webster's Northward Ho from 1605, Fletcher's The Pilgrim from 1621, Middleton and Rowley's The Changeling from 1622, and Webster's Duchess of Malfi from 1614. And Carol Thomas Neely argues that these five shows about Bedlamites, those who are contained in Bethlehem or Bedlam, as it was called on the stage, can be used as a metaphor and might have been used as a metaphor. During this time period, the professional playhouses were new institutions. Elise, you mentioned that in the last episode. And these professional playhouses might have used the city court rivalry to their advantage and used this like meta theatrical scene of Bedlamites to analyze the relationship between the courts and uh, Mm -hmm. professionals and playhouses themselves right the one thing that all these plays share when they do portray bedlamites is that these are characters that are not main characters to their plots Mm -mm. they kind of come in for their scene do a sort of meta theatrical play within a play and then are never heard from again yeah right right and this play within a play could be a um response from the theaters about like how theater at that time was seen as being like the anti-theatrical sentiments Uh that were I also mentioned last time where people were trying to get the theater shut down. They didn't want them in their neighborhoods because people would be super rowdy at them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So maybe what was going on for some of these playwrights was that they used, they they made up this narrative about a Bedlamite in order to create a metaphor for those Mm -hmm. who are like fearful of the sedition of plays. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I have a quote. It can also tell us about the competition between the companies and the like heightened theatricality of bringing in these characters to perform play within a play mm-hmm. allowed them to exaggerate all of the things for which plays are attacked. Right. So depictions not based in fact, but instead used as allegory for the 
sociopolitical relationships. situations at the theaters, yeah. relationships that the theater was caught in the middle mm-hmm. of. Yeah. Mad persons satirize like city professionals who, speaking of sociopolitical relationships, city professionals had more prestige and authority than playwrights and players. Playwrights and players were always seeking to not get shut down, like trying their hardest not to get shut down. Also, they represented skewering doctors, lawyers, merchants, scholars as lascivious and stupid and exploited the mad and widened the gap between mad and healthy. So like this concept that you can be returned to sanity, this tool that these early modern playwrights used widened that gap between mad and healthy and certainly would have lended a hand in creating false narratives about what it means to be quote unquote mad and what the people in the hospitals were like. Yeah. And um, I thought another interesting note from Carol Thomas Neely on this was also that in these plays, the majority, vast majority of these scenes, they aren't placed at Bedlam specifically. They're placed performing for the wealthy, right? Well, some of them are like where the performance for the wealthy takes place. Mm -hmm. Only three of the plays have a scene that's actually set in a house of the distracted. The Pilgrim contains two scenes and the Changeling three. And then the Honest Horror Part 1 is set in Bethlehem Monastery, which is near Milan. Okay. And then Northward Ho says that they go to London's Bedlam, but they place it in a different part of London. Mm-hmm. And Duchess of Malfi is set in Italy. So mm-hmm. the distracted persons that she is entertained by aren't Bedlamites. Mm. So again, it's not a mimicry of specific people in Bedlam. Right. My, my assumption is that no playwright or theater maker of the time went to Bedlam to, or Bethlehem to actually research what was going on. They are interchangeable, yeah. yeah. But none of them went to the hospital to actually find out what was happening, to analyze, you know, to observe. Correct. We have no proof of them going. No. It just seems to be that it was more of, I'm going to use something that I don't really understand uh-huh. as an allegory. Because... Making Bethlehem look bad makes the stage look good. A little bit. A little bit, maybe. And of course, we don't know what these playwrights are thinking. So that's just me making a a guess about, you know. And I I do want to say, because they're not doing anything to call out Bethlehem, the hospital. They're just deciding to take this idea of like houses of the distracted as a location for metatheatrical scenes to take place in. That's not they're calling out Bethlehem, the London institution. Right. It's just, we want to have a metatheatrical scene. What's someplace that very few people know about? Yeah. And I suppose this is where I will put a pin in, like, I should probably read those five plays. So down the line. Yeah. But this is, you know, creating Bedlamites. What we call Bedlamites are not even Bethlehem patients. No. They're not characterized as Bethlehem patients. They're just... They're tools for alcohol. Yeah. Uh, So that was early modern England. I want to continue pushing forward in time. We are leaving early modern England, and I'm going to talk broadly about asylums in primarily America, but also asylums in England. After the early modern era, we get into 1700s, and the hospitals continue to be relatively similar to the 1600s. One addition to treatment was the use of straitjackets, Straitjackets were used in the 1700s to restrain patients for a multitude of reasons, control antisocial behavior, 
prevent harm or suicide, uh, if patients were requesting being restrained. But attitudes generally changed about straitjackets and the treatment of patients in 1829 when William Scrivenger, a patient at Lincoln Asylum, was found dead from strangulation after being strapped to his bed in a straitjacket and left overnight without supervision. And the incident persuaded the authorities at Lincoln to abolish all physical restraints and implement a non-restraint system, indicative of a wider 1800s asylum reform change in attitude towards mental illness and the care of mentally ill people. Okay, so what you're saying is that even though like the image of these houses for the distracted and the care sometimes comes along with restraint mm-hmm. and these straitjackets, but that was not something that was even invented until about 100 years after early modern plays were being written, and then 100 years later was discontinued. Yes, thereabouts. And, oh, and I also want to preface, before I get into this, my research for this next part is from a book called Theaters of Madness, Insane Asylums and 19th Century American Culture by Benjamin Reese. I'm going to focus here on the 1800s and how Shakespeare influenced early psychiatry. But before I talk about Shakespeare, I want to talk about the conditions in the asylums. Mm -hmm. In mid-19th century America, the condition of the mentally ill seemed to demand and to a large degree received national attention and the full creative energy of a group of dedicated reformers. According to mid-20th century French historian Robert Castle, who was a sharp critic of institutional psychiatry, He said that there was something progressive about the 19th century asylum movement in that its architects refused to view madness as a preordained destiny. And because they believed, quote, that man is the product of his own works, his living environment, that he may be overwhelmed by his very conquests, broken by the changes and chances of history, unquote, it was also man's duty to repair those minds that had been broken by the modern world. And I'll get to that modern world part later, but the early 1800s saw a a reformation of sorts with mental illness and treatment of the mentally ill or the distressed. From the early 1830s until just before the Civil War, the environmental and cultural emphases of American asylums borrowed features of the moral treatment movement that had been developed by non-medical, typically religious-oriented practitioners in 18th century Europe, such as William Tuke, founder of the York Retreat in England that was founded in 1792, who believed that madness could be tamed in a loving, disciplined environment. So we're going from straitjackets as a restraint to... Kind of like a return to what we had prior to straitjackets, which was loving, compassionate care, primarily by family, supported by healthcare professionals. Exactly. So although asylum physicians insisted that insanity was at its roots a disease of the brain that called for medical intervention... They also believe that mental illness often had a psychological or moral cause, and that a carefully controlled environment was as essential to the cure as the administration of medical treatment. So some examples of causes for going mad during the 1800s include a blow to the head, the inhalation of poisonous vapors, from indigestion, from masturbation, from hereditary predisposition, or from any other diseases, and asylum Annual reports and writings also include causes for madness as excessive study, religious enthusiasm, anxieties over work, something called blowing fife all night, and a fife is a small high-pitched flute. So I'm guessing that that's a... um, That sounds like a euphemism. Yeah. 
<laughs> I Googled it and I couldn't find what it was. And I was like, music, partying, but it very well could be a euphemism. I don't know. That's blowing a small pipe all night. So it could be. It could be. It could also be a euphemism. <laughs> it could definitely be a euphemism. You're probably right. There's a good chance you're right. Uh, reading vile books and ecstatic admiration of works of art. And in or <laughs> I see your head you're like going, what? What? I mean, some of these I expected. That one was unexpected. The admirations of works of art? Yeah, just being way too enthusiastic about paintings <laughs> was <laughs> not. <laughs> I mean, really, what I'm gathering from this list is that it's like too extreme in any direction uh-huh. can be a cause. Yes. You shouldn't be like ecstatic or yeah. excited, you know. And this is the 1800s repressed. Right. But it's like Kristen Bell and the sloth video would be you, like, no, no. No, no. Let's get her you to... Need some, uh, uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, in order to combat the roots of disease, the asylum's therapy consisted of curated cultural activity. And the buildings themselves were magnificent structures with like beautiful grounds. There were oftentimes working farms, sometimes zoos. Inside many asylums, there were debating societies, lecture series, literary journals for patients, daguerreotype workshops, so that early photographic process, and fairs. Patients were taught in schools, preached in chapels. They were encouraged to participate in dramatic groups, and they were coached in the arts of polite conversation. And while all of this sounds good, uh, the energy that the reformers devoted to, quote-unquote, restoring the mad to the realm of reason was ultimately channeled in ways that produced new forms of inequality in the social realm and conflict in the cultural realm. And what I mean by that is that asylum superintendents promoted normalization of one way of life and stigmatized those who stubbornly held to modes of conduct and expression that were outside of those norms. Mm. So like you could be a person with autism or from a different cultural background, from a different class background. So while it sounds like, oh, wow, like you have all these activities It's also like, oh, but we're trying to get you to conform to this one idea of what life should be like. Correct. And like, you need to conform without adaptations. Yeah. Yeah. The superintendent says, these are the things that we do here to get you back to the realm of reason. But the realm of reason is our concept of what the realm of reason should look like. Yeah. Exactly. And in regard to this, Castell writes of, quote, the almost inevitable failure of the totalitarian institution insofar as the person detained was obliged to break with their culture and repudiate their group and class affinities for the sake of a plan for their own regeneration in which they had no part because it merely expressed what their asylum masters had decreed, unquote. Now, did these treatments work? I'm not going to give you the curates that were reported for New York State during 1848. And the reason I'm not going to do that is because Reese, the author of the book I read, said that those rates were shown to be faulty and we don't know the legitimate cure rate. Yeah. I mean, compared to what? Yeah. <laughs> and also your self-defining cure for something that maybe doesn't need to be cured. Yes. And while patients of these institutions digested material from the outside world, the outside world also digested what was coming out of the institutions. An example of that is in October of 1850, U.S. President Millard Fillmore wrote a letter to Dorothea Dix, the reformer and advocate of state and federal construction of insane asylums. And in particular, uh, she sent him something that fascinated him. Uh, He was fascinated with a, quote, lunatic's poetry to Jenny Lind, a Swedish opera singer, 
which Fillmore wrote, quote, is a very creditable production. I am not certain, but the partition which separates madness from genius is much thinner than most of us suspect, unquote. Uh, what the 19th century institutions brought into being was the procedure of continuous control over bodies and behaviors. Power in the asylum was not granted to an individual or a specific group, but rather was relational. So uh, Foucault, in his 1961 book, Madness and Civilization, which evaluates the meaning of madness in the Renaissance, classical age, and modern age, portrayed the modern age asylum as a battlefield in which medical authority was engaged in a more or less constant scene of confrontation with patients, the goal of which was wearing down the mad and forcing them to accept the dictates of the institution passively without resistance. Uh, I also want to note that in addition to the cultural control over these patients, the quote-unquote insane lost the right to vote, to sign contracts, to make wills, and to hold property. So that's the condition in the asylums in the 1800s. So what I want to do is I want to look a little bit at the superintendents. Yes. Yeah? Okay. Who were these men? Tell me, who are these white men? (laughs) These white men, these doctors, were not necessarily medically trained, nor were they members of the medical field. They just owned great top hats, Uh didn't they? And monocles. Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. They're in their interview. So um, show me that you'd be a great superintendent. Top hat, monocle, cigar. Yep. (laughs) Uh, Some only trained in 19th century medicine. Others did not have a medical background. In fact, some superintendents refused to join the American Medical Association in favor of the Association of Medical Superintendents of Insane Asylums for the Insane. These physicians, for all their emphasis on modern advancement of medical or mental science, operate in a culture that had not yet experienced the fundamental turn towards modern science and medicine. So to these superintendents, the good opinion of the lay public was more important in legitimizing the system of the asylum rather than that of their colleagues or fellow practitioners and researchers in the medical field. Now, I have a question for you. Okay. Do you think William Shakespeare, playwright actor of the Lord Chamberlain's Men and the King's Men, was a medical expert, specifically in psychiatry. No. Well, guess what? Some of the foundational doctors from this time period, and I use the word doctor loosely, (laughs) the insane (laughs) asylum superintendents thought that Shakespeare was. Hmm. And luckily for our podcast, but unfortunate for those patients, the asylum superintendents of the mid-19th to early 20th century turned to Shakespeare. How? <laughs> I mean, like, I'm like, yes, very gifted at writing about the human condition, about giving us characters that we can, you know, now see having, you know, human experiences that include mental illness and disability, but to use it as a basis for treatment. Mm-hmm. Well, from 1844 to 1864, at least 13 lengthy articles of Shakespearean criticism were published and other psychiatric writings invoked his name in matters concerning diagnosis, nosology, and treatment. A.O. Kellogg, who became the superintendent of the Port Hope Asylum, wrote, quote, A very complete system of psychological medicine could be compiled from the works of Shakespeare. No textbook or treatise extant deserves to be so carefully studied by those engaged in psychological pursuits as the works of this most wonderful of men, unquote. In virtually all of these articles, 
The Shakespearean system of psychological medicine was known to resemble almost exactly the system of moral and medical treatment that was institutionalized by the medical authors themselves. Not only did Shakespeare endorse the modern experts, but Kellogg calls his understanding of madness as the true key to understanding the great works of literature. Isaac Ray, superintendent of the Maine Insane Asylum, believed, quote, the revolution in the management of the insane that occurred toward the end of the last century produced among its legitimate effects a better knowledge of insanity that became visible in works of literature as well as in the current opinions of society, unquote. So he is writing about how the management of the insane can be seen more in literature as doctors start to understand the insane to a greater extent. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting to me that this is like also paralleling the like resurgence of Shakespeare on the stage from what we know. We know that Shakespeare falls out of fashion mm -hmm. in like the 1700s and reemerges in the mid to late 1800s. Mm-hmm. Especially in America, mm -hmm. we, North, in the United States, we see great Shakespearean actors becoming celebrities, yes. becoming um, household like Shakespeare names, becomes mm -hmm. revered as high culture again, mm -hmm. or for the first time, maybe. Yeah, no, you're you're not wrong about that. It feels like it's perhaps an attempt to legitimize this new field of psychiatry mm -hmm. by attaching it to this very popular piece of popular culture, right? Okay, so two things. One, yes, there was a resurgence of Shakespeare. And during this time period, it wasn't seen as the elite Shakespeare that we now know today. It was much more common for mm -hmm. people from across the social strata to read Shakespeare and um, see Shakespeare and be interested in Shakespeare. Mm -hmm. And these superintendents were uh, middle class, typically. And while they were legitimizing their work and their position, they didn't want to be seen as elitist. Mm -hmm. And so there was this, who can we turn to that has legitimacy, but is not seen as an elite figure in society that would make us look like we've got our nose up in the air, you know? Yeah. It's like influencer marketing of the 1800s. Yeah, <laughs> it is influencer marketing, 100%. And Shakespeare is not alive to see what they have done to... No. You know, yeah. So here's an overview. American early psychiatrists Brigham, Kellogg, and Ray were not the first to use Shakespeare's plays as medical reading. In 1778, Dr. Akenside is cited as the first physician to, quote, assert Hamlet's insanity is real, unquote. In 1882, physician Benjamin Rush used citations to describe diseases and occasionally borrowed classical authors' recommendations for how to cure them. Shakespeare is included in that. In 1822, British doctor John Mason Good used Hamlet as a template for his discussion of quote-unquote melancholy atonita, which is a deterioration of the well that results in an inability of firmly pursuing any laudable exertion or even purpose. He also called Shakespeare, quote, the highest authority in everything relating to the human mind and its affections, unquote. In 1833, a more systematic book by George Farron called Essays on the Varieties of Mania, exhibited by the characters of Hamlet, Ophelia, Lear, and Edgar, was published. Many British alienists were writing extensively on Shakespeare from the 1850s through the 1870s. 
English psychiatrist John Connolly took his reading of Shakespeare further than those before him. He wrote, quote, Shakespeare furnishes in the work of creative art more valuable information about insanity that can be obtained from the vague and general statements with which science, in its present defective state, is constrained to content itself, unquote. And I want us all to keep in mind that Shakespeare has advice from two fictional doctors. Number one is Lear. So this is bringing us back to our play. Lear has a strong predisposition to insanity and is in a state of incubation waiting for something to trigger it. And the physician's advice to repose with the foster nurse of nature. So resting is one of the profound insights of the early psychiatry moral treatment. Mm -hmm. And number two, Macbeth exclaims, quote, throw physic to the dogs, unquote, after the doctor says in the case of Lady Macbeth that nothing can be done to, quote, minister to a mind diseased, unquote. Mm -hmm. So Macbeth is like, throw out doctors, you know, like, useless. Yeah. In the plays, Hamlet is insane despite the fact that many of his behaviors appear rational. Stefano of the Tempest is allegorized as an asylum physician and, when confronted with Caliban's madness, subdues him with two methods. Number one is material, the bottle, and number two is psychological, kindness. So those are some like treatments that we see that these doctors were like paying attention to. So this is where they are looking through Shakespeare's plays and going, oh, here's someone who seems to be a doctor or treating someone who appears to be mad. And what can we gather from this? Oh, Stefano is nice to Caliban and gives him a drink. Yeah. So perhaps we can be nice like... to someone and give them a drink. <laughs> Shakespeare said. Shakespeare said this. So superintendent does this. Yeah. Like, why are you doing this? Oh, well, see here in The Tempest. Mm hmm. You know, the play with the storm and the sprite and the magic. That's where the science lies. <laughs> okay. Uh-huh. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh-huh. In Duncan Sackeld's 1995 book, Madness and Drama in the Age of Shakespeare, Salkeld points out that it is primarily Galenic conceptions of humoral imbalances that inform Shakespeare's representations of madness. Right. Yes, right. So while Renaissance and early modern medical thinkers did view insanity similarly to the 19th century thinkers. They were using like anatomy, dissection, you know, other medical trains of thought and science. Shakespeare was not writing that way. He was sticking to that good old Galenic ancient humoral stuff. Yeah. Put them back in balance. Yes. Show Christopher Sly a funny play. Mm -hmm. Go on a walk. Bloodlet. Vomit. Let him rest. Uh -huh. Yeah be deprived of, you know, certain foods and go out in the cold. Right. So Shakespeare's science was simply incorrect. <laughs> it worked, but it wasn't correct. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Correlation does not equal causation, right? Correct. So Shakespeare's science was thoroughly based in observed correlations, but yes. not diagnostic causations. Much like the penal reformers of the 1700s used literature and art to construct a prison system, superintendents of Victorian quote-unquote lunatic asylums turned to Shakespeare's dramas for models of mental aberration that could be applied to their clinical practice. For example, British superintendents tended to invoke Ophelia and Hamlet in describing common conditions among their patients. American superintendents did much the same. One example of this is Hamlet's test, 
There are records of Hamlet's test being used as far back as 1828. London physician Sir Henry Halford devised a test of insanity for his patients. In one instance, one of his patients appeared to be lucid, but wanted to revise his will. Halford devised an application of Hamlet's bedroom scene with his mother, quote, bring me to the test and I, the matter, will reward which madness would gamble from, unquote. So that part of Hamlet. Halford asked his patient to reword his will. The patient got many of the figures and names wrong. And because he gambled from the matter, the new will was declared invalid. Mm. So how did superintendents and asylums develop such a connection to Shakespeare if Shakespeare used such false science to explain madness? Like those who thought that since Shakespeare had a good grasp on the law, he must have studied it. They also thought that his understanding of insanity would indicate that he had studied patients at Bethlehem Hospital. Records do not give us any proof that Shakespeare studied there or even went there, so this was a matter of wishful thinking or just making stuff up. <laughs> Kellogg wrote, quote, In Shakespeare's knowledge, derived not from books and the accumulated experience of others, but from the closest observation of what he must have seen in actual life, he recognized what none of his critics, not conversant with medical psychology in its present advanced state, seemed to have any conception of, unquote. He's a forward thinker. Exactly. He was ahead of it. He didn't need... He was ahead he, of his time. He was ahead of his time. He didn't need the science. He was a natural we've poet. Now, and he we've knows... We've now found the science that supports it. What they were doing back then instead was completely barbaric. Right. And look at how what we're doing aligns with this person who we all think is a genius. Yeah. It's a wild feedback loop mm -hmm. that these early psychiatrists who were writing about Shakespeare were engaged in. Yeah. This false narrative that they're creating to add legitimacy to what they're trying to do. Exactly. But what the superintendents were doing did not go unnoticed. The most extended critique of the superintendent's appropriation of Shakespeare comes from Mrs. George Lunt, a former patient at an unnamed private institution. In her 1871 memoir of her asylum stay, she shares Brigham, Kellogg, and Ray's sense that Shakespeare was the finest character delineator of madness and great mental conflicts the world has ever known, and she refers to him as a great poet, physician, and philosopher, but that's where the similarity ends. She writes that Shakespeare's work consists of a set of, quote, ideal studies that seems to come like breaths and images from another world, unquote. She implies that one would be foolish to drag those ideals down to the level of the actual to validate him by the weak tools that pass for science. And unlike the superintendents and early psychiatrists who generally classify Hamlet as mad, Lunt writes, quote, Hamlet was neither witless nor mad, for it is apparent in his case that the opinions with regard to his insanity have been drawn rather from attempted perversions of his mood by other characters in the drama than from his own conduct, however erratic. Those who surround him, fearing his moods and clouds of action, fasten this excuse of madness upon him to cloak their own guiltiness and monstrosities, unquote. So, like Polonius, the superintendents can never fathom the workings of Hamlet's mind, nor Lunt can herself. Unlike the superintendents who view Shakespeare as a god, Lunt views him as a piece of cultural capital. So, that is Bardolatry in Bethlehem. Wow. Mm-hmm. And then just to zoom out a little bit further into the future from where these men end, right? Right. We now have this concept of asylums and we know what they become. And that then the field of psychiatry and psychology rapidly advances over the next 
hundred something years right. to where we are today, where I don't think anyone would think that Shakespeare's the expert on. <laughs> I don't think so. And, you know, one of the things that we sort of talked about in uh, an earlier episode, can you armchair diagnose Shakespeare's characters? And how do you play the roles of a mad Shakespeare character with an armchair diagnosis? Like, mm -hmm. how, how do you do that? Zoom out to today, right? Yeah. When we have an understanding of one, you know, the current idea of like being non-neurotypical, mm -hmm. but then also what is diagnosable depression? What is anxiety? And can we see these, like Shakespeare didn't have these words, when we don't have the words for something, we can't actually conceptualize it or mm -hmm. identify it in the same way. Right. There's this story of languages that don't have the words for a color for a long time, not being able to identify that color. Mm -hmm. So to like link that back to armchair diagnosing, Shakespeare didn't have the words to say Hamlet's depressed. No. So can we today say Hamlet's depressed? I don't have the answer for that. I yeah. <laughs> I would assume I would assume that what I would need to do to go through that is talk to somebody who knows modern psychiatry and someone who knows early modern humoral theory mm -hmm. and see if there are places where they can connect in some way. But even still, right. you know, you can maybe surmise some stuff from it, but it's such a risky thing, I think, to try to claim with certainty that you can understand, especially because that you early can diagnose modern, a character. Yeah, because early modern, you know, we, because, we all haven't changed all that much, but early modern people viewed their bodies differently than we view our bodies today. Right. And how separate is trying to diagnose a character and like these 1800 superintendents trying to show that Shakespeare had an understanding of what they were doing and right. that he was ahead of his time? <laughs> is it the same thing? Possibly. <laughs> Yeah, possibly if you're standing here in 2022 saying Shakespeare knew he was writing a depressed a character. Depressed character. Is it similar? Or is it better to say, like, these are traits that we now recognize as this, mm -hmm. as indicative of this, and I'm going to play it that way because I can align these traits. And that's how I, it is still relevant today. Mm -hmm. And because Shakespeare was writing the human condition, not because Shakespeare right. was trying to make a statement about modern psychiatry. Yeah, he wasn't writing medical science. Yeah. But mm -hmm. I think we can say that what makes his play still relevant today right. when we do them is that early modern culture was looking for answers that we're still looking for. Right. Exploring questions that we are still asking. As we like to say, like, things haven't changed that much. Not really. No. Yeah. But we've created new systems. It, I'm thinking back on, you know, look at queer coding a play and... You can see queerness. The early modern people, they didn't have a gay identity. So you can find where things can be performed today, but you can't say with absolute certainty that mm -hmm. it's the same as it is today. Yeah, that Shakespeare wrote it this way. That yeah, that Shakespeare wrote it this way with the understanding of what an LGBTQIA community is looks like in 2022 like. mm -hmm. but at the same time it's like that's what make you know when we go into productions understanding what is our 2022 lens and how are we applying it right and making sure that we're applying it thoughtfully intentionally and like to reduce harm right one of the reasons why we put 
our guidance at the beginning of these two episodes is because the plays aren't necessarily kind to the mentally ill subjects. Correct. Or the disabled. Mm -hmm. And in 2022, when we're looking at them, we can't just go, oh, well, Shakespeare knew what he was doing. He didn't know what actually this implies now. And we need to be thoughtful about how we apply what he did. Right. And avoiding bardolatry, uh, incredibly talented playwright, still a human being with flaws and faults. Fallible. Still fallible. Yeah. He didn't know more than us. <laughs> no. <laughs> he did not. Unless um, unless William Shakespeare time found traveler. TARDIS, time traveled to 2022, read a bunch of medical journals, went back mm-hmm. To Picked up the DSM-5. Uh-huh. Understood what peer reviewing was. Uh-huh. Went back to the 1600s and went, I can now write a play ahead of its time. Mm-hmm. I think it's a good place to end it. Shakespeare did not know more than us unless he had a time machine. Yeah. Which I would be really uh, happy if somebody explored that possibility in a you know, <laughs> sci-fi fantasy of sorts. So if you... Write movies or TV shows or books, comics. I give you permission to steal this idea. On that note, thank you for listening. I'm Courtney Smith. And I'm Elise Sharp. This is Shakespeare Anyone. Thank you so much for listening to Shakespeare Anyone. Works referenced in this episode are available in the episode description. Our theme music is Never Ending Minute by Sounds Like Sander. If you would like to support us, it would help us out if you would hit the subscribe button like us, leave a comment, write a review, share us on social media, tell a friend about us, all the things. We'd appreciate it. You can also support the podcast at patreon.com slash Shakespeare anyone. Patreon patrons get access to exclusive bonus content throughout the year. The link is also in the episode description. For more, you can visit our website, shakespeareanyone.com, Follow us on Instagram at ShakespeareAnyonePod or Twitter at ShakespeareAnyone. For Twitter, that's ShakespeareAny and the number one. Every other platform is spelled out like the name of the podcast. Now, because you listened all the way to the end of the credits, here's a completely random Shakespeare quote for you. From Hamlet. First quarto, scene eight, spoken by Gilderstone. Gertrude, you'll see this play?